With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't-miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at First, first Listen. Listen. This season... We're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right! All right! right. This is The Doug Gottlieb Show. Here's... In the bonus with Doug Gottlieb. What up in the bonus of the Doug Gottlieb Show podcast? How are you? Good day to you. Welcome in. Um, all right, so the story of the day continues to be well, the implosion of Northwestern football. And, you know, it's interesting. Um, there's a couple of things about Northwestern football. Did, does anybody realize that the last good season they had was during COVID? And remember, if you go back to that year, the team that that year was so screwy, right? Miami and Penn—I mean, Miami, Michigan and Penn State were terrible. Northwestern was good. That doesn't make any sense. Uh, since then, they want to combine four games, but I—I I you know. Pat Fitzgerald was not fired because they won four games the last two years. He was fired because there were allegations of hazing and and some form of racism within the program. And so they let him go. Now, you know, I know enough people at Northwestern to know that this was a black eye and one that they desperately wanted to move on from, no matter how much they'd love Fitz. But I also think that uh, I, I just, I walk away thinking this thought, which is, help me out with it. Um, and, and this is kind of a life thought. I understand there are some egregious mistakes or, or things you can do, or maybe not even mistakes, they're just decisions that you make, which the ramifications are, no matter how much goodwill you have, you got to be fired. Like Bob Huggins' DUI, for example, Forget about the fact that he's a West Virginia alum, and I'm not even taking into account that he was already on uh, a form of probation because of the radio call-in show incident. 
the fact is he blew a .22. He didn't know where he was. He was driving with a shredded tire. Could have killed somebody on like a Saturday night. You're the highest or second highest paid member of a faculty of a state university. You cannot keep your job. It's not going to happen. There is no amount of goodwill that's going to keep you employed because you're not only taking your own life in your own hands, you're taking others' lives in your own hands. And that's, that's not an acceptable thing. Uh, so uh, the fact is there are some decisions where it's out of anybody's hands. That's not the case here with Northwestern. I think part of the reason for such a pushback from Northwestern was because they gave the two-week phony suspension, suspension, you know, when no one's in town anyway. You know, and yeah, they took back some money and he's making a ton of it, but he's making a ton of it. And I think he's owed like 58 more million dollars. So two weeks of pay isn't going to kill him. Look, I, I don't, I don't know enough of the details. I can only tell you that if you just, if you, you know, if you do the amount of research that a third party law firm does and you come to the conclusion that he didn't know and that you're pretty sure some of this took place uh, and and the whatever feelings you had, you ended up settling on a two week suspension. I get that people were mad the suspension wasn't long enough. I'd probably agree with them. But there's a difference between two game suspension out of a job. Right. I mean, that's the the big takeaway is that there has to be. We have to have a better sense, in my opinion, that you can be really mad, really upset, make a really strong point, but you have to just fire everybody? Does Pat Fitzgerald have to be fired? Like if you said Pat Fitzgerald couldn't coach the year or half the year, and this is the, and this is the punishment for players on some level hazing, Regardless of whether or not they suspended him for two weeks. See, I, I don't think the pushback should be over two weeks. No way. Because everybody sees, not just your Instagram, everybody uh, sees your story. And uh, there are people that will try to track you down to get an autograph or to hang out with you. And you're going to have a bad day or two. And I do believe that everyone should be judged on that same scale of, hey, let's take up all the good and let's take the bad and set them against each other. And as long as the good kind of overwhelms the bad, you're good. You're fine. You keep going forward. Otherwise, you got to kind of reassess your life. But in addition to that, okay, in addition to that, I think a good portion uh, of this is we've made everything about extremes in TV and in sports. You can't, you can either not suspend and do nothing to Pat Fitzgerald or you can get rid of him. The truth is somewhere, the sweet spot's somewhere in the middle. And I'm just stunned that no one was able to point that out, to discuss that, to get him a place, you know, with his father and this is what he needs and this is what his dad needs and he's taking care of him. So like the, the point is that you can be, and I said this when Bob Huggins originally did his, you know, little tried to joke about the LGBT plus Q community um, on the Cincinnati radio show. It's okay to say that behavior is unacceptable or it's unacceptable for Pat Fitzgerald to have hazing on any level on his football team. And yet it doesn't mean he has to be fired. 
right? If you if you found no if you found no one who says they he absolutely knew, you know, I, I just going from two weeks suspension to fired is going from zero to two hundred miles an hour. That's the part that doesn't sit well with anybody. Before we get to what the fox said, I want to share with you part of just a portion of my podcast. I did live this weekend at NBA Con in Las Vegas. I sat down with Joey Graziano. Joey is the SVP for global marketing and sales and marketing and events at the NBA. And, you know, it's like when you're trying to uh, talk about things in the NBA in regards to NBA Con and the upcoming NBA Cup, I also, I like to use the all ball pod to talk about basketball. I also talk about people's lives in sports. And so when I met Joey, I asked him, I said, did you play baseball? And he's like, yeah, I played college baseball at Georgetown 02 to 05. And when I learned it was 02 to 05, and then during the interview, he said his dad was a New York City police uh, fire chief. So I stopped and asked him, well, what about what happened on 9-11? Where were you? He told me the whole story. Uh, the story is fascinating. So what I thought I'd do is I'd clip some of this. This is The podcast is called All Ball. If you don't listen to it, you're missing out. It's great. And it's not great because of me. It's great because of the content, because of the people who I'm interviewing. Take a listen to this story, okay, of Joey Graziano. Dad's a New York City fire chief talking about what happened from his perspective on 9-11. The guy to help us kind of break it down for us is Joey Graziano, who is a senior vice president of global events. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, okay, so uh, you're a baseball player in college. Yep. You get done at Georgetown. Yeah. What'd you do? I, uh, so I, I kept playing for a little while. I moved to the Dominican Republic. Um, had a nonprofit there called Baseball Libros. Uh, the idea was to be able to, uh, grew up in New York City, was playing ball. My dad was a New York City fireman, so I spent a bunch of time in Spanish Harlem. And the thought was I wanted to be able to sort of reconnect with that. And, uh, and so we built a school there to be able to incentivize literacy, mathematics, uh, convince kids that you could be able to play baseball at a high level without having to forgo the academic side. Um, from there, went to, went to George Law School. But hold on, wait. You, you opened some doors there. Okay. I was, yeah. Because Georgetown was 2002 to 2005. Dad was a New York City firefighter. Yes. So that means 2001. Yes. You're in high school. I was. You said I could ask you anything. You could ask me anything. Where were you? Um, uh, 9-11? Yes. Where was it? Um, I, was, I was a senior in high school. Um, my, my father is, was a fireman at Engine 22, Ladder 13, Upper East Side of Manhattan. Um, my father is the last person to leave any Twin Tower alive. My dad's entire firehouse um, passed away. Uh, I lost um, incredible, incredible men who were great, very close to me. I spent my, my early years uh, at Randall's Island in New York. Um, you know, we were playing softball every Thursday. So you could not go to not go to school. My, that was the one rule in our house was you didn't have to go to school on Thursdays if you wanted to go watch Dad play softball. So my heroes, um, you know, growing up were not were not you know Dave Winfield and Don Mattingly, um, but they were they were these giants. Ooh, um, you can name them. Yeah, they I mean, inc- incredible names. You know, Greg Stajak, who was a pitcher at St. John's, who you know taught me how to play ball, and then um, you know ended up being somebody who I can remember watching one of my high school games when I was a junior in the state championship was there at that game last game he ever saw me play the following the following fall obviously things change so names like that that um you know mean a lot to me 
um, the, the guys of the guys of Engine 22, Ladder 13, um, and their families are, you know, a driving force in in my everyday reality. It's incredible. You know, I I, uh, I was actually I was a professional basketball player. I played a year in Russia. Yeah. And I came back and I played with the Lakers in the summer league. Summer league was at Long Beach State back then. And then I came back to uh, Oklahoma and uh, I trained at, at Oklahoma State. And what I would do is I would go and do uh, fill-in radio. Yeah. And the guy who was the big afternoon drive host there is a guy named uh, Jim Traber. And he had been a, he played for the Orioles and he was like a local legend. And he was the color guy for the Diamondbacks. So the Diamondbacks won the World Series, right? Yeah. They were really good back then. And so it was... They broke it, Yankee fans' heart that year. Uh, they, I mean, they, they, they Luis did. Gonzalez, like, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, my dad, my dad threw out the first pitch of that ALCS. Um, my dad's a baseball guy. Uh, that, was, that, was the, that was the Jeter, um, you know, saved the series yeah, yeah. With, with one of the with greatest the plays of all time. Yes. Yeah, that was that series. My dad threw out the first pitch at Yankee Stadium. Um, on, uh, on that series. Well, that, then that makes it that the greatest first pitch in Yankee Stadium because I was thinking, I was going to ask about the George Bush first pitch in Yankee Stadium, which is Icon- you know, very I- iconic. I- iconic. Iconic as well. But I, yeah. I mean, I, I, rem- I mean, look, I remember that day. And then uh, later, obviously, working at ESPN, the ones at CBS, we lived in Westport, and so many of those families were, yeah. were, were affected uh, uh, by, by 9 11. Uh, man, I, I can't imagine, and I, I can imagine why you went away from home to, to go to yeah. to go to Georgetown, you know, yeah. instead of playing for for St. John's. So you're you're doing a nonprofit, you're playing ball, you're in the yeah. Dominican. How'd you get to the league? Uh, so, so I I ended up leaving. I was uh, I went and went went to law school. Uh, so I was at Georgetown Law School for a number of years. Thought that's probably where I would spend some time. I I was fortunate enough. I won a fellowship. I moved to Ireland for a little over a year. Uh, in the middle of my law school, I boxed professionally. Actually, the first time I got to play hoops again um, was I played. I played for the Galway Collegiate Basketball Team. If you can imagine, like I've got a bunch good, of eighteen-year-olds. Hey, hey, a good friend of mine, uh, Dave Rebson, works for the Big Ten Network. Yeah. He went and he studied abroad. Yeah, and he played basketball oh, in Ireland and too. And he—that was where he told me. And I don't know if this is true. He said, you know, they, they say in Ireland, and it's that the um, closer you are to. Uh, uh, the Guin- where they make the Guinness, the yeah. better the beer is. I-, I think that's right. Is it true? I think. I mean, I was drinking more of the whiskey, but yes. uh, you know. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, I-, I think that I think that's 100 percent right. Uh, so you got a fellowship. You go to Ireland. Yeah, go to Ireland. I come back, and then I'm now a practicing attorney, and I practice at Jones Day. I expected to probably spend a big portion of my career there. It, it was a great firm. I learned a bunch. I had I had great. What type work. of law? Uh, so I was white collar criminal defense work. Okay. Um, yeah, saving saving kids, um, <laughs> and uh, and I thought I you know I thought I'd be there for a while, and there was a family who was very instrumental to my family during 9/11. They're the reason I got to go to college, um, and that family they happened to own a small business in D.C. And um, I, the guy asked me to have coffee with him. He said he was going through a bet the company litigation. There was a fraud issue with his with his CEO, and he was like, I need you to leave the law firm and come work for me. I knew we're going to have to rebuild this entire thing. And so uh, my dad's rule in our house growing up was if your neighbor's house is on fire, you run towards the fire. It's the only rule he ever gave us. He didn't believe in anything else. Simple man, simple rules. And uh, so I left. I went to the managing partner's office that afternoon, gave my two weeks notice, walked out of a law firm and a big paying job and ended up at a company that had 20 employees and no real office with a bet the company litigation that was on the front page of the Washington Post on my first day. Uh, it was a small business that was taking care of kids. 
and uh, and so allegations of fraud in a, in a very popular small town become a very very big deal. And uh, we rebuilt that company. I became their chief operating officer, went from 20 employees down to one, took it back up to 1,000, wild successful creating immersive versions of Disney, hyper-localized versions of Disney World around sports. We had a third of the Major League Baseball's IP, the headfirst companies. Um, and, uh, and then five years later left. Um, and was thinking I was gonna, I was going back to New York, and I was gonna take some time. It had been a crazy run, and I was gonna write this story about my dad's firehouse. That's what I wanted to do. I was coming back to t to do the interviews, to start taking the notes. I wanted to write this story. Write. I didn't know what I was gonna do with the story, but I wanted to write it. And uh, while I was there, someone asked me, "Would you go have an, an interview with with my boss at the NBA, Kelly Flato?" And about 10 minutes into the interview, she said, "Can I bring HR in?" And uh, next thing you know, I'm talking about a job with the NBA in a way I, I was never what expecting. What year is this? This was five years ago. That's amazing. Yeah. So, and at the NBA, I've had, I mean. I, I don't want to dwell on the 9-11 because I know it's, it's so emotional. Have you, have you ever asked your dad about the day? Yeah. Um, so, um, my, my thought, so, I will have it out, Doug. Okay. Uh, so, I've gotten into one fight with my father. I appreciate this, by the way. Yeah. I, I, I truly do. <laughs> I've got into one fight with my dad. It happened to be on September 10th. Oh. Um, as you know, senior, you, you were an athlete. I was an athlete. I was, at that point, thought I was, I was good. I wasn't good at anything, but I thought I was good. Um, and my, my father um, said that the coach from Haverford, was one of the all, Dave Beccaria, one of the all-time great human beings on earth, had been reaching out, reaching out, reaching out, and trying to recruit me. And I was like, Haverford? I'm a, division, I'm a Division One baseball player. I don't want to do three, right? Yeah, um, and I didn't, and I and I wasn't being respectful in my responses back. I, I was just letting him reach out and not respond. And my father told me that, uh, you know, in this house, like if somebody offers you, like you call him back and you say no, and you can say no, but you say no as, as a man as and man. you call him. And I refused to, and I told him that he never went to college. He doesn't know what the heck he's talking about. And um, and that's how I slammed the door. I said a bunch of other expletive words. Uh, as I walked up the door, and my father went to work before I saw him again. So I, I, I thought my father had passed away until the next, until the twelfth was when we figured, finally found out my dad was alive. So, so, um, where are you on the eleventh year in high school? I, I'm, I'm a senior in high school. Yeah. Um, and then how did how did you guys find out? Because I, I was I was driving in a car yeah. from Stillwater, Oklahoma to Oklahoma City. And I heard it on the radio, and I thought it was like a spoof of War of the Worlds. Yeah. And I walked upstairs to the radio station, and that's when the towers were on fire, and I saw them both come down. Paint, paint the picture for me for that day. Yeah, I mean, I was in, I was in, I was in school. We were in a science. I mean, I can remember taking a biology test. I took a test. We like we get noticed that something had happened, and that if your parents were are in the World Trade Center, you could come down to the library for the guidance counselor. And my dad had been at the 96 World Trade Center bombing. I knew my dad was working that day, but I didn't think anything of it. I just was like, keep going to school. Kept going to school. At lunch, we, I saw the first video, the news of the, of the towers and things like, and I was like, this is not good. But I, again, didn't recognize how bad it was. My, my best friend, um, his mom worked in, in one of the other smaller towers and I was more worried about her. Um, so we went, he picked me up, like we went to school together, he drove me home. We first went uh, to, to, check on, um, to check on his father. We went to his father, who's a gar uh, Garden City High School guidance counselor. We stopped over there, was like, is everything okay with mom? She was fine. Um, but then we get home to my house and I knew things were wrong the minute I got home because the cars were lined up in my driveway. Um, 
this is before cell phones. Like I didn't own a cell phone. So there's no way to me to get a hold of anybody. And I knew, and my mother was cooking. My mom does not cook. Small Irish woman. Like we do, we do takeout. We don't cook. Um, and, uh, she was cooking. And when I walked in and my, my aunts were in the, in the kitchen and I knew immediately stuff was, things were not good. My mom had heard from my dad early in the morning and then that was, that was the end. Um, and uh, we ended up not finding out for hours later uh, when somebody said they thought they saw my father. Um, and then it wasn't until he came home after, you know, about 2.30 in the morning. So my dad had been carrying somebody out from the 24th floor. Um, he had met his, the rest of his firehouse in the lobby. Um, and he was carrying somebody who had a, had a heart condition. He kept carrying that man. He jumped on top of the man. The building came down. My dad was outside. My dad's fireman and fellow firemen were inside the tower in the lobby. Um, so my dad, I've seen the video. My dad was my dad was buried alive, and then ended up and, and ended up being able to get out. And and uh, you know his fellow firemen were not. Two thirty in the morning. Do you still have like soot and dirt all like all, yeah, all he, over him? He, he, yeah, he came home, um, and and I can remember the first thing he said to me was, "They're all gone." That was that was the first words I've had. I my father and I have had one real protracted very long conversation about it, which I sat with him. It was a night we were together, just the two of us in Florida, and talked for a very long period of time about it. Um, but that's probably the, the extent we've ever talked about all the details. Wow, right? I mean, how amazing was that entire thing? By the way, if you want to hear more of the full interview, just go to wherever you download these podcasts, type in All Ball, and it's up there live now. It's Joey Graziano, part of my All Ball podcast. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
NFL Total Access, the podcast, is getting you ready for the 2024 NFL Draft. I'm your host, Andrew Levy, and I'll be delivering two shows a week to make sure you're caught up on the very latest NFL news, including every free agency move and how it changes the draft needs of your favorite team. Draft experts and talent scouts, mock drafts, and a few shock drafts, too. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is already on the clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Right now, let's get to what the Fox says. And now. <laughs> what does the Fox say? Every day in the Doug Gottlieb Show, in the bonus podcast, we play for you a portion of a previous show on Fox Sports Radio or Fox Sports One. We call it What Does the Fox Say? Here's Craig Carton talking about Damian Lillard. To Miami. It ain't getting done tomorrow, and I'd make the argument unless Portland caves or Miami does something stupid, which, by the way, is not what Pat Riley does. No. This is not getting done. You have to find another team willing to be stupid. And the thing about this, <laughs> I mean, that's what it is, right? Like, Dave Moon's a 33-year-old aging guard. Like, he doesn't have a six-year, uh, you know, lifespan left in the NBA. And, oh, by the way, he's never won a Western Conference Finals game. He's obviously never won a title. So, while he's a great player, a first-bound Hall of Famer, he didn't lead Portland to any legitimate success year after year after year. And, yes, they probably failed themselves and him and not putting the right pieces around him. I think that's a, probably a fair criticism of the front office of the Portland Trailblazers. But you got to do what's good for you. And tell me who the Miami Heat have that Portland wants. Hmm. They've said they're not giving you out of Bayou. They've claimed they're not going to trade Tyler Hero. And even if they did, you know what I need you to give me? If the only piece I'm getting is Tyler Hero or, you know, one of the other kind of role players on the Heat, I need four first-round draft picks. Um, I, I think this thing gets done fairly quickly, to be honest with you. Um. All all the public sentiment aside, being in Las Vegas, you talk to enough people and they all say the exact same thing. Like, he's going to go to Miami. They just got to figure out how to get those assets, how to get those multiple first round picks. And so that means that, you know, not only is Portland going to benefit from it, but you would guess who are the teams with all the picks? Oklahoma City. You know, how how can they get wrangled into this thing in order to get some picks? I think that's really what's at stake here. Um, I, I do think it's interesting though, that a team that was an ensemble cast, there's a little bit of the golden state warriors and granted Miami wasn't really good last year and this makes them demonstrably better, you know, but they were a, they were an ensemble cast and they did it kind of the strength in numbers and, you know, but you've lost so many of those guys and now you're going to lose anything else you have of substance and build around three. And I, I think what's going to be interesting is uh, that Miami is going to be so very, very different than they've been in the past. 
you know, in this incarnation and with these two finals, which is just a bunch of dudes, junkyard dogs, tough as hell, make some threes. They made more threes in the playoffs than they did much higher percentage in the playoffs in the regular season. I, but now they become a three-man team and this fill other places. I don't see it working. I see it being better than Portland and nicer to go outside in the winter, but I don't see it working in terms of a championship because it's such a departure from the culture that they've built. This is uh, LeVar Arrington saying why he doesn't see the Chiefs and Bengals as a rivalry yet. This is that year where if Cincinnati comes out and they're throttling or they're thumping, um, if they're winning and they're showing that that this this Cincinnati team is just as good as it's been for the last two seasons – then now I feel as though the conversation of that train, that train, uh, you know, head-to-head yeah. head train collision is is really on pace. But I think that this is one of those seasons where it's a prove-it season for Joe Burrow. That's like you take that next step to, okay, he is the best player in the league right now. Like, I, I got to give it to him, even though, you know, Patrick Mahomes is the man in KC and KC still doing what they're doing. This is that year for him to, in my estimation, to really establish that is the presence, that is the dominance of who Joe Burrow is, but it's also the presence and the dominance of what little brother in the AFC North has been because that's exactly what they've been, is little brother to to the other teams. Like, big brother is the Steelers. You know, big brother junior has been the Ravens. You know, the the, the ugly stepchild has, has certainly been Cleveland. And now Cincinnati is kind of like, well, you know, we don't want to be an ugly stepchild. We just want, you know, are we just little brother? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, look, if if you continue, um, <clears throat> if you continue to uh, to match up in AFC championship games, a rivalry will be built. The other part you need to the rivalry is you need the Bengals to win one of these games in the postseason. Right? That that's where a true rivalry is established. Here's Colin Cowherd on why the Angels need to trade Shohei Otani. So I can't imagine as a general manager not winning with him and getting nothing for him. Yeah, I got to get one of those. If I won three or four World Series, or let's just say I got to the World Series and I was really, really good with Otani, and I fought like hell at the very end, and I lost him out, I got something for it. I rewarded my fans, my owner, the organization. We were sold out. But to never be 500 and get nothing for him, I'd be devastating. So to me, I'd move him. I would move him. Um, and also, you know, Mike Trout is a very, very quiet kid. You know, Otani is a global star. And, you know, you're seeing Otani start talking about, yeah, I don't like the losing part at all. Different backgrounds. Uh, Otani's has much more buzz around him. There's much more juice to his game. Let's be honest. He's more important. He pitches, hits with power. He can run. Uh, I, I just think, I think Major League Baseball would be better served if he moves uh, and is in the postseason. I say this all the time. Damian Lillard owes himself May and June on TV. Otani owes himself. He owes himself to be on baseball TV in October. He's that great. He's an absolute legend. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I'm, I've, I've evolved on this thing and I was talking with Matt Holiday, who's going to pop on the pod and of course pop on uh, tomorrow as well. And to, to have him walk out the door and you get one first, one pick between the second and third round, uh, 
You just can't do it. And, I, you know, I started with the premise that how are you going to trade away a guy who's going to break the all-time single-season home run record record that was just set last year, but you have to go back and make one last pitch. You know, whatever the, the absolute highest number you can think of is, you got to go make one last pitch. And then if the answer is, uh, I don't know, we're going to see, then you got to move him. Because you can't walk away with nothing when you have the best asset. That's just, however damaging it would be to your attendance this year, it'll be damaging to your attendance for years and years and years to come. And you should be able to find a home that wants to recruit Otani and thinks, hey, if we can get him in here with a postseason run, we can, uh, we can woo him and, and win him over. And, oh, yeah, by the way, be among the highest bidders. That's what the Fox said. What does the Fox say? Uh, let's find out who and what's annoying Ryan Bershinger. And now, it's your annoying. What do you got, Brian? So, of course, with uh, last night's Home Run Derby, uh, it is an all-star event that I particularly enjoy. I have a ton of fun watching the Home Run Derby. And, and the first uh, You're Annoying is a, is a two-part. Uh, the first two nominees for You're Annoying are kind of in the same vein. Um, so, first off, the coverage of the event itself with ESPN, I think they need to find a better way of making sure that we are able to appreciate as many home runs as we can. Because how many times do we watch the Home Run Derby and, and you've got Randy Rosarena up there and he drills one to the left and they show on on their uh, their two on the, the side screen of uh, the home run itself and where it landed and then you see a Rosarena on the left, he's swinging at another four pitches and you've still got the camera on just one dude sitting in the outfield where the ball set. Uh, the point is, is that ESPN, you're annoying because you still haven't figured out a, the best optimal way to actually show every home run as you can. I get that it's tough. It is a very frenetic event. Uh, the the action is going uh, constantly. Uh, but ESPN, you're annoying. I, I don't know if maybe you could put a, a trail on the ball uh, so that way it's a little easier to watch or, or whatever you can find to make the actual viewing of the event better. Um, I like that. I like the, the ideas. It's You can't cover it like it's a regular baseball game. And part of the issue that you have is you're using the same kind of camera set up and kind of traditional broadcast model for a non-traditional broadcast, right? Um, so I agree with you. I think a drone would be cool, right? Several drones. How cool would that be? Yeah. Um, where you can, you can have them. You know, the issue you run into is you don't want them to get hit by a ball. But, <laughs> sure. Uh, but I think that that would be, you know, you could shoot it from behind and have the drone follow a ball. Like, that'd be amazing. Ooh. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, so I, I'm with you. I think a use of new technology. I also think, though, that um, the fact that it looks frenetic on TV is awesome. And it just shows how TV doesn't actually capture the essence of events. Because the truth is that when you go in person, it's kind of boring. Um, it's hurry up and wait and hurry up and wait. And it's a little bit anticlimactic because, you know, it's an all or nothing sort of endeavor. The only thing that matters is if it's, if the ball is going over the fence and again, in the stadium, it's kind of a party, but it's the, the, the actual event is not as thrilling as it's made out to be, but they've tried to rework it 15 times. There's a level of annoyance that I completely understand. 
And uh, that brings uh, perfectly the the second point here is the fact that the the problem with the Derby is not the format. The format itself is a ton of fun, and I think it's it's way more fun than the ten out format. And the second nominee for your annoying is people who are complaining, saying that it needs to go back to the ten out format. Uh, having the the uh, the timing, having that that energy, it's a ton of fun to watch. And having that ten out format, just uh, it's very easy to drift off. I get that. It allows you to watch every home run in an easier way. But like you said, the the better way to approach that would be to uh, find new ways to, to push technology to cover the event in a more fun way. Yep, I'm with you. What else? Uh, so, of course, the All-Star Game is tonight. And one thing that I desperately miss from the All-Star Game that they are doing again this year is uh, they are not having players in their own jerseys. They have one unified uh, a jersey for the American League and one for the National League. I just thought it looks so awesome for the All-Star Game. It's something so special that you can do just for baseball for the All-Star Game where everybody is in their own jersey because obviously you can't do that for like the NBA All-Star Game because the colors of the jerseys actually matter. You could throw the ball to the other team. With baseball, it doesn't matter. And so when you get all of these different collections of jerseys on the field, it just looks so awesome. And I really do miss that from the All-Star Game and I think it's a bummer that we don't have that anymore. Agreed. I, I wish I could argue with you, but I don't like. I don't understand why do we need an All Star jersey when the the jerseys themselves, the the difference in the uniforms, one of the things that makes baseball great and baseball unique. I, I love that. I, I love that uh, th- that idea, um, and I've I've never understood like the specialness of the. And I understand, you know, you got the well, you're wearing your hat, and your hat is what's okay. But in this particular case, I love the All Star game. I love the regular jerseys. I think they they pop, and it looks like a baseball game when you do it that way. So, yeah, out of the uh, the most annoying year, the coverage of the Derby, the, the format complainers or the all-star game jerseys, uh, Doug, what are you feeling? I think the format complainers, uh, I just do. You know, I, I understand that there's things to complain about, but like, let's be honest, we're we're watching advanced batting practice. You know, like we're really going to argue about advanced batting practice to, to try and every year to tweak to make more as exciting as possible. Something that, like I said, in person, not terribly exciting. And you're, you're trying to serve two masters, right? The local master who's actually at the event and then the people watching on TV and, and making it exciting for them as well. It's a hard thing to do. And the constant complaining about it is, it's annoying! Why are we doing this? Why do I? Because we can. Hugo Samuel still has a burr in his saddle about the Philadelphia Eagles. I don't blame him. I thought the Niners were going to win as well. And then, of course, his two quarterbacks couldn't throw a football. Uh, He was on a CBS Sports radio show, and he had this to say. Devo Samuel here with us. Well, something that is your call. I saw what you said about the Eagles back at the Super Bowl at Sirius, where if Brock Purdy didn't get hurt, you guys would have won that game by double digits. Why why would that have been the case? I don't know that, though. So do you not still believe that? I mean, I do. But, I mean, we're not – that shit is like – we're not going to keep – talking about it. I mean, I said what I said. Gotcha. So then what happens this year when you play Philly on December 3rd? I don't know. Just wait till what? Week 13, 12, whatever week it is. We'll show you. Well, then you know how that's going to go I down. You're, you're going into Philadelphia. Those fans are going to be booing you loud. You have a message for Eagles fans? Hey, guys. Yeah? All right. We're good to go. What do you mean? We have Debo on right now. Yeah, I know, but we're going to head into camp right now. Are you serious? Okay. Thank you. That's 
There you Thanks, go. Bye. Debo Samuel right there. Doesn't want to answer a few questions. Well, uh, uh, Zach, I think Zach's a pretty young guy, right? And uh, I, I've, I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. I've been in that situation previously a little bit. But you gotta, you got to sense your audience, right? You know, and was that how he started the interview, Ryan? Did he start the interview there? I believe that was a couple questions in. Okay. Uh, you know, you got to warm a guy up. He's got to want to talk about it. And if he makes it clear that he doesn't want to talk about it, there's nothing you could do. You got to move on. And that wasn't what Zach was trying to do. But why can we play it for you? Because we can't. That's it for the In the Bonus podcast. Check out the radio show, which follows this on this podcast network, or you listen to it live, 3 o'clock Eastern, noon Pacific, on Fox Sports Radio, the iHeartRadio app. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at First, first Listen. listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.